My friend Francis Schaeffer was a Christian philosopher who was especially active back in the 70s and 80s. Schaeffer said this about living with purpose. He said, Yet man, and by that he means mankind, being truly man, no matter who he says he is, cries out for meaning that can only be found in the existence of the infinite personal God. People everywhere cry out for meaning that can only be found in the existence of the infinite personal God who has not been silent but has spoken. Schaefer was making a point that what everybody wants is only available in the God who speaks. The God who is, is the God who speaks. And so there's a sense of purposelessness that comes outside of faith in Jesus. There's a loss of meaning outside of Christ. And he was, uh, in many ways, ahead of his time in analyzing Western culture And today we're seeing a lot of what he had written about come to greater clarity and fruition. But the fact is, every day, whether you're a philosopher or not, every day, you're in a battle for meaning. When we get up in the morning, the question, why am I here, drives our decision-making. Now, we don't often start our day with philosophical contemplation, you know, give it a little, okay, I'm going to start my day. Why am I here? I think, therefore, I am, so let's go, right? No, but we get up and we get after what we're pursuing. And we implicitly or explicitly, we answer the question, what should I pursue? Also, every day, we're not in isolation. We wake up and we have other people telling us what we should pursue, other voices speaking to us, also implicitly or explicitly. So sometimes they're saying it out loud, and sometimes it's just the pressure of what everybody else is doing. But the message is clear. You should chase this. You should pursue this. This is the meaning of your life. This is what you should love and cherish more than anything else. This is what will ultimately give you satisfaction and purpose. Every day, that conversation is happening. And I just want to be clear with you this morning that that is a spiritual battle, the answering of that question. And I also want to answer that by saying it's a demonic battle. We, um, we suffer from Hollywood and its influence when we start talking about demons. Because as soon as I start talking about demons, we start thinking about big, scary, like, you know, uh, Marvel bad guys or something that's going to possess you or cause you to float or projectile vomit across the room or something weird like that. Um, but the fact is, demonic influence is a battle for belief. Demons are trying to influence what we believe. And I've given you some scriptures there at the bottom of your notes today just to help you, help remind you of that. But it, this is a biblical doctrine. In Colossians 2, we're called to be careful that we're not deceived by the philosophy of the world. And in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, we need to take captive those, th- those thoughts. We need to take captive the way we think our, and, and false thoughts and, and bring them into submission to Jesus and a correct worldview, which is a worldview centered on Christ. In Ephesians 6, which talks about the armor of God, and the armor of God ultimately defends us from demonic attack against what we believe. Demons want to deceive you, and maybe their best move yet has been to convince Western culture that they don't exist, that they're not here. Oh, they're just, you know, something for television. 
Well, I need to ask the question this morning, when it comes to your purpose, when it comes to the meaning of your life, are you deceived? Have you been too influenced by the demonic doctrine of our world? Again, happy Mother's Day, everyone. <laughs> right? Now, we can take heart in light of this very real threat. Why? Because through the Word of God, we are equipped to see through demonic lies, especially in a passage that actually talks about demonic activity. Okay, so that's where we are in Revelation. So, Revelation 8, we're going to start at the very end of chapter 8, verse 13, which might go better with chapter 9, but, you know, we'll just leave it as is. But um, we've had the, the four trumpets so far that announce the judgment of God and reveal the judgment of God against creation. As we talked about last week, as creation falters, we look to the Creator. That's our only hope, right? So there's, there's a recognition that creation is broken and, and the stain of sin even impacts creation. But all the while, our hope is to look to, to God Himself, not to the creation, right? But then in verse 13, there's a transition moment here, okay? So let's pick it up in verse 13 and then we'll get into the last three trumpets of judgment. Uh, or the last two, or the fifth and sixth trumpets. So watch verse 13. John writes... The Apostle John writes, I looked and heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. Now we're going to get two out of the three today, but this is an ominous sign, right? Notice it's also auditory. Yeah, the word here that's translated eagle could also just as easily be translated vulture, and I think maybe vulture is better. Because the idea here is you have a, a vulture circling the earth, right? Vultures circle when? When there's flesh to feed on. And the first four trumpets announce God's judgment against creation, but now these last three trumpets, and especially the fifth and sixth that we'll see today, they announce God's judgment against unbelievers. And there will be flesh, for the vultures to feast on by the end of the sixth trumpet. And so the vulture circles and he cries out, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's a warning, right? There's a warning here, an auditory call. Be careful, be warned, watch out, because these next three, they're trouble. He, he cries out, woe to those who live on the earth. And you might remember, but in the book of Revelation, that phrase those who live on the earth, it's actually a phrase that refers to those who have rejected Jesus' lordship. So they've, they've refused to trust in Christ, and they've anchored their hope to this earth, to this world, right? To worldly hopes. And so they're called in the book of Revelation, those who live on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth, who think like they dwell on the earth, they're anchored to the earth. And so the vulture is circling around, crying out, woe, woe, woe to those who have anchored their hope to this world. Because the judgment of God is coming for you. Then we get to chapter 9, verse 1, and we have the fifth trumpet. Verse 1, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft to the abyss, and smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth, and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. 
Okay, let's just pause right here at verse 4. So we have this interesting scene where we have a, a star fallen from heaven. That would be an angel, okay? And so the angel has been given the key to the pit or the abyss, okay? And so that's a reference to the abode of the dead here, thinking about the idea of hell. And so the angel opened, but who gave him the key? It was God who gave him the key. And so he opens this, this, this shaft, and up from the shaft comes smoke, which is a symbol of judgment, and this heat, which is a symbol of judgment. There's darkness, which is a symbol of judgment. We know that from Exodus. And then in verse 3, we have these locusts come out, okay? And as soon as we, we read about these locusts, I know where you're thinking. You're thinking, Pastor Ryan, this reminds me of Joel chapter 2. And I would say, you're right on it. You're making your mom proud on Mother's Day. Absolutely. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 announces the coming of locusts like an army as a judgment against Israel, okay? But here, they're not just locusts because they're coming out of the pit of hell. So they, they, they come out of this shaft, out of the abyss. They've got power to sting or to strike people. And then, but then in verse 4, these locusts are told, don't eat any grass. Don't eat any vegetation. Who are they coming for? They're coming for people. And the only thing they're told in verse 4, and this is so important, they're told, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. We saw this in chapter 7 where believers are sealed with a stamp that says they belong to the Lord, and therefore they are protected from the wrath of God. They're not protected from all suffering. They will face persecution and difficulty, but they are protected from the wrath of God. And so here in the, in the fifth and sixth trumpets, we'll see that sealed believers, that those who belong to the Lord, that they are exempt from this particular kind of suffering. But outside of that, those who have not believed, they're open game for these We'll call them demon locusts. Verse 5, it gets even worse. They were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Okay, so if you pause here, we get another hint here about what exactly these demon locusts are doing. And it's not just that about the physicality of being stung. They're a picture. They represent demonic oppression, okay? And probably they represent demonic oppression uh, from the time of Christ to his return, at least. But here's the deal. What are they doing? Well, when people are physically oppressed and they haven't trusted in Christ, they long for death and it doesn't come, they are hopeless. And so that's the function of this demonic attack. It's a desire for life to end without meaning. They long to die. Death won't come to them, but it's not there. Now, some commentators think this is only going to happen right towards the end, okay? But either way, it doesn't really change the main idea, especially for the, the seven churches that would have read this initially and, of course, for us today. We go on to verse 7 to 12, continuing to describe the demon locusts, and it, it gets a little weird, and we'll talk about why. But watch verse 7. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads, and their faces were like humans. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe has passed. There are still two more woes to come after this. Now, 
Listen, some well-meaning commentators in ages past read this and thought, those are Apache helicopters, okay? They are not Apache helicopters, okay? These are demonic locusts who are given the green light to afflict uh, unbelievers. And like I said before, I think the main idea of their affliction is this idea of purposelessness, that they want to die without meaning. They don't want to go on living. They've lost it. Now, their, their time frame is temporary. The five months deal is their, their, their time frame is limited, okay? So they don't have rain forever. But who's their king? Notice verse 11. This is how we know it's demon locusts, not Apache helicopters. It said, they had as their king the angel of the abyss, and, he, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, or the destroyer. This is a reference to Satan. And in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Now, Apollyon in Greek means destroyer. But, you know, there's just something we need to mention here. There's a Greek god, actually probably the most popular Greek god nationwide at this age in the first century, and his name was Apollo. And so most commentators think, and I agree, that Apollyon is a wink to Apollo. They thought Apollo was the sun god, the god of purity, right? The god of order. But John here, as he's given this vision by the Lord, is saying to the churches who lived in the first century who would be tempted to worship Apollo because their neighbors were worshiping Apollo, because they wanted order. They didn't want chaos, and so they would worship Apollo. And John is saying, again, the Lord is saying through John in the vision, don't miss it. Apollo is not to be trusted. He is the destroyer. And to worship Apollo is to allow demons to afflict you. That's, what we're, that's where we're going here. To worship these false gods in the Greco-Roman system, to worship the gods of our age, it will, they will rob you of your purpose. And when you are physically suffering, you will want to die, and you won't be able to die because you won't know why you're here. That's the result of the demonic attack in the fifth trumpet. Now, you'll notice very carefully that they're not allowed to kill in this phase, but they're just allowed to, to harm and to cause despair. And finally there, finally, there in verse 12, we see the first woe is past. There are still two more woes to come after this. We have a, a double warning in our passage this morning. Okay, it functions on two levels. We have a warning for unbelievers and a warning for believers. So we're going to talk this through for each section. But the main idea that we need to take away, and again, the exact interpretation of when this demonic attack happens, although commentators vary, doesn't change the main idea. Here's the deal. False gods make false promises. False gods make false promises. The gods that are our world worships, the gods that we are tempted to worship, that we are tempted to look to for meaning, satisfaction, right? That we're tempted to chase, that we're tempted to love and pursue, those gods make false promises. They are the result of demonic influence. So let's just be really clear that that's happening today. But false gods make false promises. And first, we have to know, maybe directly tied to Apollo here in in the relation to the fifth trumpet, is that they cannot give us purpose. They cannot give us purpose. So there's two warnings. First of all, for the unbeliever. Outside of Christ, you have no hope for finding true meaning. If you refuse to trust in Christ, you will live a life that ultimately has no purpose. You can pursue money and get rich. You will not take it with you. You can have a big family 
and invest in your family and shower your grandchildren with wonderful gifts and leave a massive uh, inheritance for future generations. But when you die, none of that will go with you. You can pursue career achievement and climb the corporate ladder, but at the top of that ladder, you will not find peace or satisfaction or contentment. And in fact, what's going to happen is somebody else is going to be nipping right at your heels to take your spot. You can seek popularity. And if more people will just like you, then you'll finally be happy. Just like everybody living in L.A., they're all so happy and content. Yeah, just between us, they're not. Okay? They're not. Outside of Christ, life is purposeless. Sorry, Apollo. And sorry, Domitian. One of the, one of the, the Roman emperors would dress up like Apollo because in some ways of thinking in Roman mythology, the emperor was like the incarnation of Apollo leading the, the, the people. So he would dress up like Apollo and he would be worshipped at a public ceremony like he was Apollo. Sorry, Domitian. You can't give us purpose. So for the unbeliever, there's a warning here. The warning is that that meaninglessness should you never turn to the Lord, is actually an expression of God's judgment on you. That God didn't create you for that existence. That he does love you and has made provision for you. We'll talk about that more. But you need to know, outside of Christ, you will not find ultimate meaning. At the end of it, you're just going to want to die without reason. There's a second warning, though. The second warning is for believers. Believers, we are sealed, protected from this fate. And I think particularly in focus is the fate of meaninglessness that's the result of idol worship, okay? So we are protected from a purposeless life. Oh, that's a mouthful, all right, but let's work with it, right? We are protected from a purposeless life. We are guarded in Christ. We are guarded from wandering our days, not knowing why we're here. We can get up every morning with a confident answer to the question, why do I exist? And the answer, as we read the rest of the Bible, is so clear. I exist to glorify God and pursue Him forever. And that is always in our best interest. It is not always the easiest day to have, but it is always our best day. And so here's the deal. I, okay, I just, just to be totally real, demon locusts coming out of a pit with smoke, with tails like scorpions, stinging people so that they're languishing, they're wishing they died, right? And not being ready to die. That sounds awful, does it not? Moms, can I get an amen? amen? Yes. Listen, if I said to you, I can give you a seal of belonging that would protect you from that, and I said, all you have to do is, is line up here and sign up, everybody would sign up for that, right? They would. But what had happened in the first century and what happens today is this. People who are sealed and protected from those demons are willingly going to worship them. Because these, these seven churches, th- those people were tempted every day to go and worship at the temple of Apollo with their neighbors. And some of them did it. And brothers and sisters, you and I need to heed this warning that although we are protected from the outpouring of God's judgment on us, sometimes we choose to worship false gods, even though they make false promises and cannot give us purpose. So there's a warning here. No believer, okay, in this scenario, no believer is going to care about being out of step with the culture 
when demon locusts are going around, st- you know, stinging everybody, right? No believer is going to be like, well, it's weird that I stand out. I don't, you know, no. They're going to be thankful for the seal and the protection that comes, right? But brothers and sisters, often our primary motivation for idol worship is because we want to fit in with our neighbors. We don't want to be weird or stand out or look different. The crowd pulls us away from Christ. But it's only in Christ that we have protection and purpose. So I want to talk this through a little bit just with some life stage specifics. And these are just a couple ideas to help us brainstorm application. And then we'll keep moving. But, you know, for those of us who are younger, elementary, middle school, high school age, you know, it's not cool to follow Christ. And it never will be, ultimately. To say no to foul speech and dirty jokes. To say no to trashy entertainment, the stuff that everybody's watching. To say no to drunkenness and all the, the partying culture that goes with it. When you, when you do that, you're going to look weird. But when the demon locusts are coming, you're going to be fine to be weird. Okay? So the battle today is, am I okay to stand out? To be a little different? And to not worship those false gods? College students, those just out of college engaging in the early days of your career, there are unfashionable truths that are necessary as a part of the Christian faith. Like, for example, God created the universe. You're going to get to your university, and they're going to be like, no. And you're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to be the weird student here in this science class who believes that there's plenty of scientific evidence to show that there is a creator? Or am I just going to go with the crowd? Or the unfashionable truth that the problem of sin is really the root cause of all issues, and that we can't legislate or educate or spend our way out of a problem. We have to ultimately seek solution in Christ. Singles, you're going to be weird by not making marriage your idol. God may have marriage in your future, but you exist to glorify God by pursuing Him. That may include marriage, but it may not. And singles, you're going to look weird when you do pursue romance with a commitment to sexual purity which our culture continues to struggle with and just cannot comprehend that that would even be a thing. Singles, you can be weird by viewing your singleness as a gift from God where you have time and energy and resources to put towards his kingdom that others don't have. It's okay to be weird. Well, it's Mother's Day. Moms, what do you say? Moms. Your identity, your satisfaction, your purpose is not found in your kids getting good grades or getting the most epic Instagram shot for Mother's Day or your appearance, like looking good for other moms to see you or the achievement of your family. Moms, the best mom you can be is a mom who gets up every morning to pursue the glory of God. When you do that, you'll find true peace and satisfaction. Dads, be weird. Don't make career status the basis of your sleep at night, your satisfaction. Don't make financial success what defines you. Don't make your kids' athletic performance what gives you a reason to get up every morning Dads, you were designed to pursue the glory of God. 
every day. And you might look weird if you don't buy into what everybody else is buying into. Those of us who are retired, don't let Fox News or CNN set your daily agenda. Don't live to play golf. And don't let your mood ride with the market. When the market's up, you're up. When the market's down, you're down. Don't let money dictate your mood. You weren't, you weren't made to spend the, the sunset years of your life in absolute selfish pursuit. Your mission hasn't changed. Pursue the glory of God. Now you've got extra time and resources. Go get them. Go get them. Widows, be weird. Disciple women in the church. Invest in the advancement of God's kingdom. Spend your time and energy doing that rather than gossiping or being obsessed with politics or whatever else might distract you. You see, worshiping Apollo, it's not scandalous to the culture. It's normal. It's what everybody's doing. And false gods make false promises, but they cannot give us meaning because outside of Christ, there is no meaning. Francis Schaeffer was right. Now, the demonic oppression is going to get worse before the end. I think the sixth trumpet, I think we're getting closer to the end in the final judgment. Watch verse 13, chapter 9. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. From the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. Okay, let's pause right here. The voice comes from the four horns of the golden altar. That's, I think, the voice of God speaking. But why is it coming from the altar? Because it's in response to the prayers of the saints. Remember, we've had the prayers of the saints that were martyred in chapter 6. We've got the prayers of all the saints in chapter 8. So here, in response to the prayers, in answer to the prayer, the trumpets are answered into the prayer. So here, what, is, what does God say? He says to this other angel, release these four angels that are bound at the river Euphrates. Now, the fact that these angels are bound probably indicates that they are demons also, that they are in rebellion against God. But they have been restricted by God's sovereign power. He has said no to them for a given time, but there will be a day when he says, release the hounds. Now, why are they at the river Euphrates? Pastor Ryan, where is the river Euphrates? I'm so glad you asked that question. (laughs) For Mother's Day, we have a map. Yes, okay. Now listen, here's Greece, right? This is the Roman Empire, first century, okay? Don't worry about the details. But what I want you to notice is right here is the Euphrates River, which was effectively the border, the eastern border of the Roman Empire, and it separated it from the Parthian Empire. Excuse me, the Parthian Empire. The Parthian Empire was the greatest threat to the Roman Empire in the first century in many people's minds. They had this really scary army, and their warriors all had long hair. There's a lot of commentators that think the long hair and the locust demons is a throwback to the Parthian army. And so the idea may be here that God's going to pour out his wrath, and the the thinking is this. You're scared of the Parthians? You need to be scared of the Almighty. that's, That's the thinking. So that's probably the analogy of the picture here. Let's keep going, though, in verse 14. What are these four angels going to do? So the four angels, or the four demons, right, they were were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year, were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. 
This is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads on the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resembled snakes, have heads that inflict injury. So if we pause here, verse 19, right? What's going on? So now we have these four angels, angelic beings, who have been bound at the river Euphrates, and now they're released. And what are they released to do? They're released to kill unbelievers. Not all, but a third. Why only a third? Well, once again, as we'll see, there's an opportunity for God's grace, even in the midst of leading up to the final judgment. I think probably this refers to what's going to happen right before the final judgment, where now, instead of the demons just afflicting people with maybe illness and purposelessness, now they're actually allowed to kill people. And so a third, a third of the people die from plagues. Plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur. Those represent plagues. So it could be just different kinds of sickness and afflictions on the earth. Again, false gods make false promises. But here, what's the promise? Well, the promise of the world is a claim to power that it doesn't have. They claim power they do not have. What power? Well, if everybody was worried about the Parthians and Rome was saying, we're the ones that can protect you from this onslaught, the answer of the sixth trumpet is, no way. How big is this army that's coming? In, in the CSB, in many Bibles, they have 200 million. But the, the number there, there's a disagreement on how to do the math. Go figure. And so... Um, <laughs> So some people would think it's more accurately, just, to tr- just more accurate to translate it. It's innumerable. You just, myriads of myriads. Like you cannot count this army. You're afraid of the Parthians? Wait until God releases what he has restrained for so long. The outpouring of his wrath against an unbelieving world. That's the army you need to be scared of. And so Rome might have claimed power to protect the people from, from the borders and what was on the other side of the border. But John's vision says, oh no, Rome can't protect you from this one. False gods claim power they don't have. Again, there's two warnings here. For the unbeliever, Rome or Washington, D.C. or Hollywood or Wall Street cannot give you protection. They can't provide forgiveness for your sins. They can't give you that, that peace that you're longing for. And so maybe there's just a moment to just acknowledge it for what it is, that if I'm seeking my protection from money or from just being entertained until I die or from political power or whatever it might be, ultimately that's a promise that they can't deliver on. They cannot provide it for you. But for the believer, there's also a warning here. Whom should we fear? I mean, we're the ones who know the Lord. And by extension from the fifth trumpet, believers are protected from this judgment. Okay, we're, we're protected from this outpouring of God's wrath. So why would we fear what the world fears? Why would we fear Rome or the Parthians? Why would we uh, look at, at all these different you know, things that we're afraid of? What are we afraid of, right? We're afraid of sometimes the government. We're afraid of disease. We're afraid of people's opinions, um, you know, listen, the, the things that we're afraid of, they're, they're, they're ridiculous in comparison with what we should fear. Which is, we should fear the Lord. Not that we fear judgment, but that we have an awe for God that makes all other fears pale in comparison. 
So are they going to send an army across the border? Send the army. We're good. The market's tanks and I lose my funds? That would be hard. But I'm okay because I'm safe with the Lord. If those people don't like me because I don't do what they do and I don't worship what they worship, that's okay. Because I'm in the family of God. I belong to him. And yes, those false gods are tempting, but they claim power they don't have. Man, I can just, you can just hear the serpent arguing with Eve in the garden. Oh, yeah. You know why God doesn't want you to eat that? Because you're going to be so amazing. You're going to, you're going to, be, you're going to be like God. You're, going to be, you're just going to be, you know what? He just doesn't want you to have the good stuff. What's he doing? He's making promises that he cannot deliver on. God is sovereign. That's really the counter-truth that helps us to see this outpouring of judgment and to not lose hope. Uh, two points on that. First of all, who gave the keys to the abyss? It was God. God gives the angel the key to the abyss, and he goes down and unlocks it. God determines the time of that. Here, God's sovereignty is reflected in two ways. First of all, he has ordered the restraining of these angels— okay, that, that are bound at the Euphrates, probably demons. So he's ordered the restraint of them. And then it's interesting because in verse 15, it talks about how they were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year. That God appointed the moment when they would be released. And so, yes, even though we live in a world where evil exists and demonic oppression is a thing, demons are on the attack, right? And even as we may get to this day where demons are allowed to kill, right? Again, there's scholarly debate about whether or not that's already happening now. If it's going to be right at the end, I think it's more likely at the end. But one way or another, the point of this is clear. That in the midst of all of that, God is still sovereign. And he is still worthy of our worship. Even as that's going down, people should turn to the Lord, but they won't. He has the power and those who are his are always safe. Did you know that this morning? You think about little kids, they feel, I think about Drew. I'm going to have nightmares about Drew not coming to me during that prayer, you know. <laughs> think about little kids. Where are they safest? They're safest in their mother's arms, right? You know, when, when scary stuff's happening, we are safe. And even when it comes to the end and God pours out his judgment, those who are in Christ are protected. We are safe because he's sovereign, because it's his work. But that demonic deception is alive and well even today. Watch verse 20 and 21. John continues to write, The rest of the people, the other two-thirds, the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. So just pause there. So in verse 20, so you have all these people that are left, and the, the image is, okay, here we are getting right up to the end, and all these people are dying under the demonic attack, and, and now the judgment of God is being poured out, and the, the vulture is crying out, whoa, whoa, and implicit in that is the call, return, return to the Lord, repent, return. We'll see that even more clearly as we move through Revelation, the, the consistent offer to the world to turn to the Lord for forgiveness and protection and, and to be made right and to be protected from the outpouring of God's wrath. But it's so sad because in verse 20, these people did not repent of the works of their hands. Now, it may not mean every single person didn't repent. It just means the majority don't repent. But one way or another, there's this recognition that the world continues to buy into the lie. 
And so they continue worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, wood, and stone, which cannot see, hear, or walk. They are powerless. They are impotent to help, to provide protection, to provide satisfaction, to provide uh, forgiveness. They cannot make us feel better. They cannot heal us. And yet continually people, even when it's made so clear that this idol cannot help you, people still worship it. I just go back to the big ones because I think we can make this point so clearly. People continue to worship money every day in this country, even though time after time we see examples of lives that are destroyed by the love of money. And then we think that we're immune to that. And we buy into the demonic teaching that says money will make you happy. Money will make you happy. If you had more money, you would be happy. Or we could talk about popularity, right? The pursuit of popularity and the things, the, the things that people will do, especially in the online age, to catch people's attention and to sustain approval, right? Things that are, that are demeaning and things that are uh, degrading to their, their, person, their personhood. And they'll do these things because they want people to like them. And yet at the end of the day, what happens? Just as fast as people push the like button, they'll push the dislike button the next day. And we see it collapse. And you see celebrities. I don't know if you ever got that thing where you see a celebrity that you thought was like amazing when they were in their 30s or 20s or whatever, and you see them in their 60s and 70s, you're like, whoa. What happened to them? What happened to them was life happened. Yeah. That popularity is not going to always last because people's opinions are fickle. And our good looks won't always last. Our achievements won't always last. You see, there's this recognition here that that, man, demonic worship is stubborn. But it's not just about the abstract idea of worship. It's about what it does to our lives. Watch verse 21, the last verse of the chapter. And they did not repent of their murders, of their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. You see, we can draw a straight line between sinful behavior and the worship of demons. And I know some of you are sitting there this morning and you're still thinking, I don't really worship demons, Pastor Ryan. And if, and if you haven't been convinced yet, I just want to make it very clear that the evidence that you worship demons will be in your behavior. It'll be in the choices that you make. So you can, tra- you can trace it back. When we hate people and wish we could murder them, there's demonic influence there. When we've given up everything in, for, in the pursuit of the money, sacrificed our families for the pursuit of money, there, there's demonic influence there. When we've adopted our culture's idea of a sexual ethic or lack thereof, there's demonic influence there. How is it coming to us, Pastor Ryan? I haven't gone to a satanic church. I'm not bowing and worshiping some crazy, weird, goat, locust, scorpion tail thing, right? It's going to come to us through the thinking of the culture. It's going to come on TV. It's going to come in books and blog, blog posts. It's going to come in the things that we read and hear. It's going to come in the attitudes of our neighbors, and so simultaneously, we have to walk this line where we, we love those who are lost around us, but at the same time, we also acknowledge that they may be peddling demonic teaching. Again, that greatest move of demons in the Western culture may, may have been to convince us that they're not there. So there's two warnings here. The first is for the unbeliever. Repent. But just like in the original Exodus... The expression of God's power here in judgment often results in the hardening of hearts. And so just like in the first Exodus where God showed his power, 
and Pharaoh and the Egyptians with him hardened their hearts against the Lord, many will do that even today. So there's this urgency to the call to repent. Please don't harden your heart. Please repent. Those false gods cannot provide for you. They are powerless. They cannot see or hear or walk. They can't do anything for you. And maybe just kind of at the end of the chapter here, it's an appropriate moment to say that as of today, God has still restrained his final judgment. Which means this. If you have been rejecting the Lord, if you've been saying no to him all this time, today you still have the opportunity to say yes. Today, you still have the opportunity to turn from that false God worship and to repent of it and to turn to Jesus. Why? Because the protection that Jesus offers comes from his death and resurrection on our behalf. Those who are sealed who belong to him, they are sealed by the blood of the Lamb, which means that there is permanent, lasting peace and forgiveness that's offered because of what Jesus did for us. Not because of what we do for ourselves or what a church does for us, but because of what he has done for us. So that offer for today still stands. There will be a day, in real time, there will be a day when that offer is no longer valid. This day that we're reading about in Revelation 9, it leads up to that. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. And so when the vultures flying around, circling, saying, whoa, 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 there's still an opportunity to repent. Now for believers, the warning here for us You think, I would never worship demons, and yet maybe that's exactly what you're doing. So there's an acknowledgement here where maybe we need to just confess, I need to reject the false gods, the demon worship in my life. I need to say no to that God. I need to say no to that demonic, anti-Christian way of thinking. And I need to say yes to what? To getting up every day, pursuing the glory of God, finding satisfaction in Him. We think I would never. There are some red flags that were involved in demon worship. One would be this. Believe everything you read or hear online or on TV. Uh, seriously. You know, that it's, and it doesn't matter which angle it's coming from, but what we're being fed online, every, every piece of art has an agenda, a message. You just got to know it. And I'm not saying stick your head in the sand. No. But we just got, as you read, as you interact, as you hear, as you watch, you need to be able to say, that's not biblical. That's not honoring to Christ. That's where this is heading, right? Red flag is, for demon worship, is that you believe everything you read or hear. The second red flag, when you talk, think, and act like everyone else. If there's nothing weird about you in our culture, that's a problem, Right? And so that could be a red flag that, you're, that you are engaged in too much demon worship. A third red flag, you resist the lordship of Jesus in a particular area of your life. So for, this is probably most common where for many of us, we, we love Jesus. We're seeking to pursue him. But then we have certain areas of our life where we're hesitant to give him authority. Like, I love Jesus with everything except for my money. Or, I love Jesus with everything except for my pursuit of pleasure. Or, I love Jesus with everything except for my career, right? And we just hold something back. And what's happening there? There's a demonic idea that's telling you, you don't have to give that to Jesus. You don't have to surrender, surrender that to Jesus. Could be, could be a problem. One-fourth red flag about demon worship. You could be participating in the worship of demons if you believe the Bible is subject to your approval. 
I'll say it a different way. You could be, you could be struggling with the worship of false gods, right? Demon worship. If you believe that the word of God is optional for you. Where God has spoken and you sit above his word and you say, I'll decide which parts of this I'm going to believe. And which parts are extra. Which parts I don't have to worry about. Because our culture, again, there's so much pressure that, that has been put on us to say this is acceptable and this isn't. But if this is indeed the word of God, and brothers and sisters, it is, then we need to say no to that demonic teaching. And we need to accept this as what? As actually the means of our defense against it. In Ephesians 6, how do we go on the offensive against the attacks of the devil? It's with the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. We, we don't dictate to God what we should believe and what we should do. We receive right, his word. We believe it. False gods make false promises. Here in verses 20 and 21, we learn they claim to be compatible with Christ. They claim to be compatible with Christ. They're going to whisper, it's okay. The gossip's okay. Love of money's okay. The scandalous behavior, it's okay. It's okay. You can do it. Everybody's doing worse around you. It's okay. They're going to tell you it's compatible with Christ. But we know better. False gods make false promises. I got to tell you about this scene in the Pilgrim's Progress because it fits so perfectly. So, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. In this, he's written this allegory of the Christian life. And in the fourth stage, he comes upon the enemy, Apollyon, from Revelation 9. And they argue, right? And so Apollyon's big point to Christian is this. He says, I own you. I'm just summarizing it for you this morning. My friend John Bunyan would be okay with that, okay? But Apollyon says, I own you. What do you think you're doing? As Christian has walked away from that life, right? And he's walking towards the celestial city. And so Apollyon says, I own you. You belong to me. And so they argue a bit. This is what Christian says to Apollyon. I just love it. He says, But I have given myself to another, even to the king of princes. Like he's above you, right? And then he says this, How can I go back? Brothers and sisters, that's the question you need to ask every morning. If you've trusted in Christ, you're navigating a complex, difficult life that we're living every day, right? We face challenges. The question is this. When you're tempted, how could I go back? How could I go back, how could I go back when I've given myself to the king of princes? Don't forget, false gods make false promises. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much, even for this tough passage where you reveal further your judgment that is coming. Lord, this, these are scary ideas. The, the demon locusts, the assault on unbelievers, Lord, it's sobering. But at the same time, Lord, we also see your mercy in this passage. Where first of all, those who are in Christ are protected from your wrath. And we thank you for that truth. Jesus, we praise you for being the Passover lamb who died on the cross for our sins and who rose from the dead and who protects us from the wrath of God. We praise you. But Lord, we also see the intended effect of this passage. It is intended to reveal and to show us the nature of demonic attack even today. And Lord, we confess that often we fail. 
We give in to that temptation. Lord, help us to be convinced that it is better to belong to you than to belong to the world. Lord, help us to ask the question with Christian from Pilgrim's Progress, Lord, how can we go back? And Lord, help us to believe what you have revealed and therefore to move forward in faith, saying no to demonic influence, to false gods. Lord, give us discernment and wisdom, we ask. We, we are desperately in need of it. And we thank you that you graciously give it through your word. So we ask now that your spirit would work in us even as we go. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.